I think the maps helped uh, bring continental drift within the realm of possibility because it got such wide coverage. Uh, National Geographic and the American Geological Society, you know, the maps ranked uh, uh, in 1959, the North Atlantic, you know, it had, you know, several thousand, maybe 30 or 50,000 maps printed, which went to the elite geologists, uh, which was important. It gave them something to think about. That's in 59. And then uh, in 64, the South Atlantic, which showed the Rift Valley, that I think as much as anything helped to, to bring continental drift within the realm of uh, rational speculation. Well, if that's what it looks like, it must be true. It, actually, it's a revolution. If you want to talk about religion, it, it's, it compares with the Copernican Revolution when Galileo only suspected that uh, the earth, uh, the sun was the center of the universe and not the earth. But then I, Copernicus proved it with a telescope. Once it was proved, that was a big revolution. You know, it was a man was no longer the center of the universe. That was something. So uh, we contributed to a revolution in geological thinking because now they're using the ocean and plate tectonics to redo the geology on the land. See, we do it on the land in light of what you learned at the ocean. And uh, it's created a revolution. Welcome to Pod of the Planet, a podcast about our changing planet and what we're doing to manage that change. I'm your host, Q Lee, and I'm part of the communications department at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And this is a real special episode we have for you guys today. We are celebrating Marie Tharp. She would have turned 100 years old, and she was a real pioneer in every sense of the word. Uh, during the 1950s, as a woman scientist, she worked behind the scenes and, and mapped, helped map the seafloor. Her work led to a revolutionary way of thinking about things like continental drifts um, which, and, and play tectonics, which back then were um, considered kind of like voodoo science. Um, I'm pleased to be joined by another Marie, Marie Denoya Aronson, who is the communications director at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, where Marie Tharp um, made her mark. And how are you doing today, Marie? Hey, Q. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. And, and welcome to the pod of the planet interview family. Thanks, I'm a fan. Great. And it's not like you haven't done this um, type of, I guess, work before. Marie, can you tell a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, yes. I was a television reporter, anchor, producer for more than 25 years, believe it okay. or not. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> and so was this like natural? Is it easy? Was it fun? How, how was the experience overall? Oh, speaking of, of the podcast, of or of interview, my podcast yeah. it was great. Yeah. I'm um, interviewing was basically the, you know, the bread and butter of my work every day for most of my life. So 
yeah, it yeah. was real easy. And the subject was fascinating. So that makes it, you know, really fun. Yeah, I could totally tell you had a great rapport with uh, Vicky Farini, who you talked to. Uh, who is Vicky Farini at, at Lamont? Vicky what, what Farini is, is amazing. She's a marine <laughs> geologist and geophysicist and just um, a very gifted communicator. Right. And and we tapped her knowledge to talk about Marie Tharp, who turns 100. Um, I'm going to be releasing this on her birthday, so we could say she turned 100 today. And um, what like you're you're up in Lamont every you know every day. Um, I, I've been working at the Earth Institute for quite some time, and so the the legend of Marie Tharp um, is is somewhat pervasive. I'm just curious, uh, how does Marie's, uh, I guess, um, Marie Tharp enter your your work or your day to day while while you're up there? Yeah, well, Marie Tharp, who actually passed away in 2006, is um, as you say, Q. She is a legendary figure um, in science at Lamont, of course, but in science overall. Um, and frankly, before I started uh, to work at Lamont, I had found out about her in some of just my reading. I've always mm. been interested in science and the oceans specifically. So, wow. I mean, whenever I could read anything about her, um, just found find her very fascinating. So, I can also say as the communications person at Lamont, when we post about Marie, when we write articles or do um, social media posts about her, people really respond to that and to her yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's a, an, an amazing figure. And um, I, every time I read something, I learn something new about her that I didn't know. And, and just like, it, it's almost endless, like how, um, like just learning about her contributions, not only to her field, but, you know, being a pioneer woman, um, and, and what she had to go through at the time. And, and she's almost like an endless, um, wealth of, of inspiration, I would say, um, for, for everyone uh, and to, and, and we're really lucky to have had her at Lamont. Uh, she, when, when did she join Lamont at what year? I believe it was 1948. Right. Um, and, and then her first I sort of breakthrough map was published. Do you, what year was that? The, the World Oceans map was published yeah. in 1977. Okay. And it made and, quite a splash. <laughs> Part of the fun. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's, it's kind of crazy to think that it wasn't like that long ago. I mean, I was alive in 1977. Um, I was five years old at the time. Uh, and, and to think that like we hadn't um, really mapped out the oceans is Kind of remarkable to me. It is, Q. It's really amazing because prior to Marie's work, science basically believed that the ocean bottom was featureless, that it was more like um, it's where all the sediments settled. It was almost like a giant, gigantic bathtub. So yeah. her work and her discovery in that beautiful map just opened up the world and, and triggered what we know, now know as the plate tectonic revolution, which yeah. is studying that whole theory yeah. and confirming that theory. And going from Marie to Vicky, who's doing her own amazing work. Um, can you tell us what, what it is Vicky work Vicky's working yes, on? Yes. Yes. Uh, Vicky is involved in an international um, collaborative multi-year venture called Seabed 2030. Mm -hmm. And ultimately the plan is to map with new technology and new detail, the entire Sea floor. Yeah. So it's a 
big part of our planet. Yeah. And so this podcast is um, part of a, a series, I guess, of information or, or content that we've been putting out over the past week, celebrating Marie Tharp's um, 100th birthday um, and and the inspiration that she's provided. We have links to other posts. Uh, we have a website now up, mariefarp.ldeo.columbia.edu that has everything on there, including um uh, a web, you know, a webcast series, um, other posts, things that she's written in her yes. own words. Uh, we'll have links. Uh, we, we started off this podcast with an audio, um, quota uh, from her. And, uh, yeah, like I said, we could spend hours, um, talking about her and, and talking to lots of other people about, about her. And, and we will continue this. Absolutely. She's a great story. Yeah. She just is yeah. because not only the science and, and how she advanced our understanding of the planet, but what she had to deal with as a woman in science at that time, it was just not, it wasn't easy for her. Yeah. Um, they didn't make it easy for her. In fact, I, I believe they postponed the publishing of her really this the discovery of the the uh, mid atlantic rift um they postponed it for a few years because they they just didn't quite buy it it was um legendarily dismissed as girl talk yeah so yeah she's she is a, a very interesting figure. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, I the kind of opposition she went through was it almost had a fanatical fervor to it where people just did not believe in continental drift, right? And they had terms of, you know, drifters or, or yeah, anti-drifters right, right. at the time and, and, right, the obstacles she had to go through, not only being a woman, but just in the science itself, um, it, it was pretty remarkable. Yeah, it is remarkable. There was um, a scientist who had posed the idea of continental drift. I believe it was 1917. Mm. Yes. Um, and, you know, it was dismissed out of hand. Mm -hmm. So think about Marie Tharp working in the 50s and 60s and then the, the map in 77. And it was just already um, had been so sort of buried, <laughs> that idea. Right. And uh, yes. And she, in her um, own words, said as a drifter, <laughs> someone who <laughs> believes in this theory, that she, you know, she was worried about her job, but yeah. that she could get fired for being a drifter. Yeah. Um, interesting. And she was right. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, clear, I clearly for, for much of her early career, she uh, worked behind the scenes and she didn't try to take credit for her monumental, you know, work and, and research that she did. Um, and I, this is an important time and, and will be for, for, the, for in perpetuity that we continue to try to recognize, um, her contribution to this science. Um, and, uh, and we, you know, part of what we did, are doing here, we published a, uh, republished something she had written, um, in, in celebration of Lamont's 50th anniversary. And um, I thought what how she ended off her piece was really poignant. Um, and Marie, you have it right there. Do you wanna just I read do. it? Yeah, do you wanna go ahead to, and read that last uh, Yeah, I love the way you pointed this out to me and I'm thrilled to read it. Okay, here's from Marie Tharp. I worked in the background for most of my career as a scientist, but I have absolutely no resentments. I thought I was lucky to have a job that was so interesting. Establishing the Rift Valley and the Mid-Ocean Ridge that went all the way around the world for 40,000 miles, that was something important. You could only do that once. You can't find anything bigger than that, at least on this planet. Here, here. 
For sure. Yeah, <laughs> well, so as I said, we're dedicating this week to Marie Tharp and uh, it's really amazing how the, how she's really taken a life of her own outside of Lamont and has been an inspiration to many young scientists. Um, what's your experience been with other people and coming up to you and asking you about Marie? Well, you know, Q, it's interesting because she has become something of a, a cult hero among young scientists. Mm. So there are Marie Tharp coffee mugs and Marie <laughs> Tharp t-shirts. And I, knowing this, and I think about this woman who worked for hours and hours and years in an office by herself, plotting yeah. these maps without recognition. I just, I wish we had a moment with her right now <laughs> to see what she would, yeah. would think about this. Yeah. And I, I think about those pictures, uh, you know, those old, uh, pictures from, from the fifties uh, while she's doing her work. And I was struck by how even she got to that point. Um, I, I don't know if you had uh, maybe had seen in her, um, brief biography, but she, she talked about Pearl Harbor being the sort of impetus of why she started studying. That's true. Um, That's geology true. That and, the and fact that there were so fewer men, um, opened up this whole other possibility for her and she jumped at it. She just strikes me reading a number of, um, biographical articles about her. It strikes me she was someone with a very fierce intellect and she needed the challenge. So, and she mm. easily bored with, right. um, topics that, you know, that she explored fully and she always wanted to explore the next thing. So here this opened up and yeah, then she decided right. to study geology. Right. I, right. She had like all these different, she chose a different major, like every semester while she was in college. And, <laughs> right. and, and then it was something like, Oh wait, I don't want to, being, I don't want to look under a microscope and that have somehow, um, doing geology and math and, and cartography and, right, and everything right, else. So right. amazing life. Amazing life. Absolutely. Happy birthday, Marie Tharp again. Um, thank you, Marie, this Marie for, for the <laughs> podcast interview you did with Vicky. Oh, my pleasure, Q. This has been really wonderful. And, uh, thank I'll you. expect, uh, you to come back to us and do some more. Um, and, and let's get right into the interview. To gain a real appreciation for the work of Marie Tharp and its impact then and now, I am so happy to be joined by Lamont, a marine geologist and geophysicist, senior researcher at Lamont, Vicki Farini. Hey, Vicki. Hello. How are you doing this morning? Great. So here we are, and on July 30th, 2020, we are thinking about this woman, Marie Tharp. It is would be her 100th birthday. Why are we still talking about this person, Vicki? <laughs> well, Marie Tharp uh, really made an incredible mark on the world, I would say. Um, her work that was done at Lamont was instrumental in the plate tectonics revolution. It really was pioneering work in the field of marine cartography, and it revealed to the science community and to the world the shape of the seafloor and the features that are there in ways that had never been done before. And it was really her, her scientific skill and knowledge, technical skill, and really her vision that allowed her to do this in a way that's just really incredible. So at the time when she was drawing these maps, what was the belief that science held about what the sea bottom, the seafloor looked like? I, I think that people didn't have a very good understanding of the sort of holistic 
you know, view of the seafloor. It's being that it's hidden by the water, it's really hard for us to understand the magnitude, the scale, the kinds of features that might be there and to really understand what it's like as though we were looking at it with our eyes. And so what she did is she brought together profiles of depth data and rendered these spectacular three-dimensional views with a lot of ver- vertical exaggeration to really highlight the, the texture and the features of the seafloor. And the way that she did it, given the sparseness of the data, it's really remarkable how correct and how consistent those maps are with maps of today that have orders of magnitude more data. We still haven't mapped the ocean in detail. We've got maybe 20% of it at this point mapped. So there's a huge amount that we still don't know empirically. Um, But as we map more and more of it and we see how consistent her maps were with what we can tell now, it's really just amazing that she was able to do what she did. What was the data that she was working from? So it was primarily um, echo sounding data. And so basically... The ship would emit a sound signal and use uh, measure the time it would take for the sound to travel to the seafloor and come back. And based on the speed of sound, we can compute distance. In the early days, that was just uh, sort of a single measurement underneath the ship as the ship moved around. And as time and technology has evolved, the way that we do it now is with something called multi-beam sonar, which gives us a lot more coverage. We get hundreds of soundings. Uh, in a fan sort of uh, perpendicular to the motion of the ship. So we get a lot more data with each ship pass. But in her days, it was really just this single profile. I think of it as like uh, when we when we map the ocean, we sometimes say it's like mowing the lawn because of the survey patterns. And so think of it as like a... Uh, 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 a hand clipper on the on the grass where you're where you're cutting it, or maybe even a push mower versus a big riding lawnmower where you have just a much bigger area that you cover. So with this really sparse data and these little tiny profiles, she was able to put together this spectacular rendition of the seafloor. So I, I picture her from what I've read about her work as this woman in a little secluded office with these rolls and rolls of paper, right? That's how the the data came to her. Yeah, she worked from paper records, which is another really amazing part of the story. Um, So she was working from the paper records. She would transcribe basically this information into a map form. She would draw texture along the profiles based on the profiles that she saw and what she interpreted it to mean. And then basically with her mind and her skill and her understanding of geology, she effectively interpolated by hand in between those track lines. So something that we would today do with a computer, she did on paper artistically based on her knowledge of the seafloor and geology and and mathematics as well. Yeah, that sounds like a very, very complicated process. How could you, considering your work, Vicki, how would you characterize what kind of focus and the depth of knowledge she needed to have to be able to interpolate interpolate in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to fathom in a way, especially given the kind of role that she had in the science community at the the time. She wasn't really at the forefront of any of the conversations. She was kind of more in the background 
trudging away on this work. And in some cases, you could draw parallels between that kind of work and what many of us do today in the fields of data management and geoinformatics. It's kind of a thankless job where you're trying to splice all the data together and make sure it's preserved and made available and, and integrated into products. But it can yield these you know, spectacular new insights about the planet and the ocean um, that really transform our understanding. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the kind of resistance Marie Tharp was up against. So I believe she joined um, Lamont in the late 40s, correct, and worked under Bruce Hazen, the geologist? Yeah, I think in the 50s, she was started working with Bruce um, and was given the task of, you know, trying to transform these data into something meaningful. Uh Certainly as a woman in those times, opportunities were more limited than they are today. So that limited uh, her, I think, to being shore-based and kind of doing this kind of work there rather than going out on the exciting expeditions of the day or of those days. Yeah, she couldn't Um, go on those expeditions, No, she couldn't go. Women weren't allowed to go on those expeditions until sometime later when men were less available to go. Um, But the other big thing, I mean... her her characterization of the rift on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge was a right. really important piece of evidence that fueled the plate tectonics revolution, part of what fueled it, right? And so that when that came forward with other observations being made by other scientists at several institutions, including Lamont, um, this whole plate tectonics revolution really challenged the scientific establishment because they couldn't, they had not yet figured out a mechanism that could drive it. And so to have something that was so contrary to common belief and understanding and what many people had built their careers on was not something that they really wanted to hear. And so You know, her work in the beginning, there's quotes of how it had been referred to as girl talk, which tells you a couple things, right? It tells you about the role of women in those days because that phrase was acceptable to use. (laughs) And it tells you how uh, unconventional uh, and disruptive that kind of data was to the scientific establishment at the time. Explain what the rift led to it led to this understanding of continental drift that had been apparently posed um, by scientists decades before, but rejected. Right? What what is that concept? So our listeners understand what she drove. Actually. Uh, well, in the most simple terms, it's that the uh, the crust of the Earth is moving around, um, and there's uh, basically. Well, I, I think that. I mean, I remember if we can try to distill it to the most simplest terms, I remember as a child looking at maps of the planet and thinking how it sure looked like Africa would fit nicely if we moved it over to South America, right? It seemed like it looks like a puzzle that fits together. And so basically in the simplest terms, play tectonics and continental drift is just that, that these, what we know as the continents today are actually moving around on the surface of the earth slowly Um, and driven by deep earth processes. But there were different philosophies um, at the time. And as this whole process evolved, this thinking evolved about how, you know, how the earth behaved as a whole. And so Marie identified the Rift Valley on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. She also 
then aligned the epicenters of earthquakes right along that rift valley. These were very important signatures um, and just observational data that helped to explain how these processes fit together. There were other observations made at Lamont um, with magnetics data a little while later, seeing the, the symmetry of that around the Mid-Atlantic ridges, Walter Pittman's work when he was, I think, still a graduate student. And so there was this huge you know, intellectual effort kind of distributed through all these different people looking at different aspects of this and all of it finally coalescing into this kind of seismic shift. Pun, mm-hmm. pardon the pun. No, but. you can't resist. <laughs> <laughs> they really like help to describe and help us understand that this is this, this huge process. And it was only, you know, 50, just over 50 years ago that that happened. Pretty remarkable. It seems commonplace and natural and intuitive, but it was a big, big deal. So she, um, I was listening a little bit to her oral history and she said um, at the time when she was posing this, that people who believed in this theory of continental drift were known as drifters and really rejected. I mean, really like you could get her, her quote is you, you could get fired for being a drifter. So I guess I'm seeing this person as being incredibly courageous. Is that your take too? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly at this point, we look back at her in that sense, right? She she was a pioneer in a lot of ways as a woman scientist, as someone who disrupted the the norm and the the school of thought about things and who really persevered and just kept going through her process and bringing the data together and trying to make sense of what it was that she was seeing. Which, like, in many ways, that's how we scientists operate, right? We, we try to understand patterns or test hypotheses. If it doesn't make sense, we start over and try again. But she was seeing evidence that made a lot of sense, and she kept going with it and was committed to it. Right. Um, one of the uh, stories, now part of her, <laughs> the legend of Marie Tharp, is that the famous French filmmaker, TV star, Jacques Cousteau, uh, set out to disprove her discovery. Do you know about that story? I know a little bit about that. Um, but I think, I mean, I, I heard stories even about Doc Ewing having crew, and it wasn't necessarily just Marie's story, but plate tectonics kind of writ large, that people were so convinced that it wasn't true that they went out to collect the evidence to demonstrate that it wasn't true and in fact ended up collecting evidence that demonstrated or that corroborated the theory. And so the Jacques Cousteau thing had something to do with collecting photos yeah. along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And, you know, part of the observation that was made also had to do with sediment thickness being thicker near the continents and thinner near this rift valley. And those photos showed that there was no sediment there, which emphasized this idea that it was new seafloor that hadn't been buried by sediment. Interesting. Um, you mentioned Doc Ewing. He was the founding director of Lamont. And, and I just want to make sure everybody gets a sense of who he was. Now, my understanding is when they finally published the research based on Marie's findings, Marie's name wasn't on that research paper. Is that your understanding? Yeah, my understanding is that that first paper did not include her name. Um, the maps that she created uh, all included her name, as far as I'm aware, but never first. She was always listed second. And that's, I think, partly 
a sign of the times where she wasn't in the lead science position, um, perhaps partly because of her gender, but also I think institutionally, that's just how things were at that time. Um, I'd love to know from people who actually knew her if that was something that upset her or not. Maybe, you know, I, th- I get the sense that she was very happy working with this data, trying to reveal what the seafloor looks like. Um, I, I share that um, interest and uh, joy in revealing the seafloor and the work that I do. Like that's what drives me to do my work. It's not, I tell people often, it's not that I'm necessarily interested in a particular process in the, in the marine environment, but what I'm most interested in is bringing the data together and visualizing it and making it available for other people to build upon. And that's very much the part of the kind of role that Marie played in the evolution of plate tectonics. So she helped to reveal information and patterns, but never took it all the way to the theory of plate tectonics. Other people built upon and took that and as the scientific process goes, you know, built upon it, added more data, and then came, uh, it, it matured the ideas and got to the point of plate tectonics. Let's talk about your work now and how it aligns with what Marie Tharp did, which you just touched upon. But I, I want to get a little bit into Seabed 2030, uh, what that project is, and you tell me, and I, I'd love to know if Marie's maps, which we haven't talked about the spe- specific maps that she produced, but how relevant are they to you as you do Seabed 2030? Sure. So um, my most of my career, I would say, has been really focused on, you know, I mean, generally mapping the seafloor um, in a bunch of different environments and at a bunch of different resolutions. Um, we have several projects at Lamont that some of which have persisted for well over a decade, decades in some cases, and some of which have built upon some of Maria's work, actually, which is a really nice thing to kind of land in as I arrived at Lamont uh, after graduate school. Um, but so, so my work is really focused on integrating data, making sure it's preserved, making it sure it's accessible to the public and the science community which is very much, um, you can draw some good parallels there with what Marie did. Um, We have a global synthesis at Lamont that we've been curating for uh, a long time at this point that is a multi-resolutional synthesis. It was initiated by Bill Ryan, who did work alongside Marie Tharp when he he arrived as a grad student, I think in 1962. so he certainly provided a lot of technical and scientific leadership in the in the um, continuity of ocean mapping work at Lamont. Bill Haxby, who was also at Lamont and was a giant in his field, was part of the initiation of our global synthesis, and so was Suzanne Carbot. So Suzanne Carbot and Bill Ryan are both still at Lamont. Suzanne and I now lead um, together our national-focused global synthesis. So we work on U.S. data, trying to get that into the global synthesis and shared publicly. The U.S. academic fleet is a huge uh, force multiplier in the field of ocean mapping because there's so many mapping systems on the fleet and the vessels go all over the world. 
Um, and so that synthesis, which is called GMRT for Global Multi-Resolutional Topography, <laughs> long words, uh, that is one of the sources of data that feeds into an international compilation, which is led by Jebco. Um, this new, so Jebco has existed, existed when Marie Tharp was doing her work, uh, back in those days. For- Jebco is the general bathymetric chart of the ocean. <laughs> It's all every all of yeah. the words that we use as scientists are very long. Nothing is concise. Um, but Jebco has existed for over a hundred years. It's a project that falls under the auspices of um, the International Hydrographic Organization and the Intergovernmental Oceanographic Commission of UNESCO. Those two parent bodies were not always the parents of Jebco, but they have been for quite some time. So Jebco. Uh, even in its name, bathymetric chart is more like a nautical chart historically. Yeah. So in the early days, it was like a large scale nautical chart. It has evolved as technology has evolved into being a digital elevation model. Um, and a few years ago, Jebco and the Nippon Foundation in Japan, which is a philanthropic organization, teamed up to develop a new project called Seabed 2030. Uh, The Seabed 2030 project has the goal of mapping the entire ocean by the year 2030, which is a massive, (laughs) massive task. Uh, It relies very much on, uh, you know, bringing existing data together, working as a global community to acquire new data, trying to share our resources and prioritize new technology is going to help. There's a a lot of pieces in this really exciting project. And so... um, our group at Lamont was um, is part of the CBA 2030 project, and we are tasked with uh, looking after the Atlantic Ocean and the Indian Ocean in a regional sense. So we are meant to coordinate with stakeholders and build a regional data product for those two oceans. Um, it's a very exciting project. Just the 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 social experiment of it alone is a fascinating challenge. Um, and the technical challenges are also really exciting. But the, for me, the way that it parallels Marie Tharp's evolution of mapping, where she started in the Atlantic and then moved to the Indian, has this really nice resonance. Um, so it definitely makes me feel like what we're doing is in some ways a tribute to her and in some ways is following in her footsteps. And we're really filling in more pieces of the puzzle as more data become available. Um, so it's a, it's a really, really exciting project to be part of. And it's, I don't know, it's, it makes me feel like as a, as a marine geophysicist and geologist, the work that I do that's always fascinated me and made me excited actually has the potential to change the world because we will be able to see the shape of the planet in much more detail than we've ever seen before because more than 70% of the planet is covered with water and about 20% of that has been mapped. So we still have a huge amount of the planet that's not characterized at all. So when you say 20% has been mapped, you mean mapped on the scale that we, that technology can give us now, the picture that technology can give us. So now. it's a little bit complicated how we do that yeah. computation, but generally I think 100 meter-ish resolution so still, that's pretty coarse, right? That's a football field. Wow. It, we do have the capacity to map in much, much higher detail than that, but it's more time consuming and it's more costly. So with a surface vessel, with a multi-beam sonar, it would take one vessel 
hundreds of years to finish mapping the ocean. Wow. So it's really a matter to get this done. It's a matter of an all hands on deck coordination effort where we get not just academics and government groups together, but we also get um, the private sector. We get the public crowdsourced bathymetry is actually a thing that's being developed so that in theory, any vessel that has a navigational sonar could feed data into this big model that we're trying to build. Wow. That's something. So just to ask what may seem a very obvious question, why is it so important that we understand the features of the seafloor of our planet? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of reasons. Um, I mean, we could, we could look at sort of basic science, right? So the kinds of discoveries that the work that Marie Tharp helped to usher along are certainly, there's more discovery to be made in that sense, just basic science. Um, navigational safety is, of course, a really important issue, um, not only in the shallow water, but even in deep water. You might remember that several years ago, there was a submarine that hit a seamount head on yes, because it didn't know it was there. So um, safety of navigation wow. is critically important. Um, understanding resources throughout the ocean, you know, the, there are political boundaries in the ocean and territorial areas, but the processes have no awareness of that. And so really understanding the large scale, um, when we're thinking about fisheries or, you know, geologic resources, whatever it might be, it all kind of connects and, and a map is one of the first things you need. Um, one of my favorite examples that I like to give people that most people have no understanding of is that the way that we're talking to each other right now over the internet, internet communication goes on the seafloor through cables yeah. and it doesn't go up through the sky. It goes on the seafloor. So every day, all of us are dependent on the seafloor, especially now when we're all really, really reliant on digital communication. Yeah, that puts it in real perspective on it as well. <laughs> um, that's pretty amazing. I could go on. There's geohazards, tsunamis, hurricanes. Yeah, that, I wanted to just ask you about that just yeah. briefly. I know one of, you know, we can't predict tsunamis and earthquakes, right? And to know more about how the ocean works, how the ocean floor operates would help. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, we can, we can have a better understanding through mapping of where there's risk of failures that could cause um, tsunamis or other sort of big geohazard issues. Um, but also knowing the shape of the seafloor helps us understand or predict how tsunami waves will propagate. It helps us predict how circulation patterns work. It helps us predict how storms and hurricanes are going to move. So in the whole the whole planet is connected, right? And so each of these processes, there's different disciplines, there's different um, expertise as we look and try to understand things. But it's really when we start to bridge across those disciplines and unite data and look at the system holistically that we, um, I think, make even bigger strides. Yeah. So when we talk about Marie Tharp's mapping of the whole ocean floor, and you just parse that for me. Seabed 2030 is going to map the whole ocean floor, but in quite a different way. Is that basically what we're saying? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting thing that, that I think about a lot as I try to talk to people about the work that I do, because when we say the word 
map the seafloor or the words <clears throat> map can have a whole bunch of different meanings. Um, do we have maps of the seafloor? Yes. Does it look to the layperson like the seafloor has been mapped? Yeah. You can go into Google Earth and you see shape and texture of the whole seafloor, but it's not based on direct measurement. It's based on prediction. So the, the 80% of the ocean that hasn't been mapped, what we put, what that hasn't been mapped, meaning hasn't been directly measured. Yeah. Uh, that's all just a prediction based on um, gravity and sea surface height. There's a, there's a computation that can be done to estimate the depth of the seafloor, um, the depth of the water. The problem with the approach that we've used to create this map of the planet that is predicted is that it can be off by kilometers vertically, which is huge. That's like there's a mountain that we didn't know was there and it's there, right? Like we would never tolerate that on land, but somehow we accept that on the ocean or in the ocean. So what we're really trying to do with Seabed 2030 is make sure that we have at least one measurement. Uh, we, we basically set up some depth zones with different uh, density of those measurements. But basically, we want to make sure that the model that we have of the seafloor is actually based on direct measurements instead of estimation or interpolation. But um, and, and so Marie Tharp's map um, was very much based on interpolation and estimation, um, driven by data at its core, but then really her mind, I think, helped. And, you know, I'm sure her conversations with colleagues and, and how, however she did her process, she was able to extrapolate that information and create a pretty accurate rendition, certainly of the, the large scale features <laughs> yes. that just, yeah. <laughs> and that was so, that. And she published that map in 77, right? With Bruce the world Hayes. ocean floor was 1977. Wow. Was and here we old. are. Little did you know, a little lady with I apparently had red hair was sitting in the office. Um, That's so interesting. Um, When, but like the the other really spectacular thing about that map that I only really recently came to appreciate is that the artist that they had painted was an artist who had been painting like ski resorts in Austria and in the Alps. And so his skill for bringing to life the landscapes that he was looking at, Marie and Bruce Hazen, who was her intellectual partner and the lead on a lot of this work, the, the, the named scientific lead, um, they found him and commissioned him to do this painting because they were comfortable that he would be able to present their work in a way that the world would be able to understand. And this, it's really a a cartographic masterpiece in many ways. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Bill Ryan, who we've, we've talked about, and and as you put it, he's sort of the link that brings it all, you know, full circle from having helped Marie finish that map because of Bruce Hazen died suddenly in the process of this, which I know is terribly tragic and had a huge impact on her. But he referred, Bill Ryan, refers to you as the new Marie Tharp. 
<laughs> How do you feel blush? <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's very sweet. Bill is, Bill is a, a wonderful, wonderful man and an incredible scientist and mentor. Um, I've, I've known Bill since I was a graduate student. I think I met him in the mid nineties and he's always just been an amazing person to be able to learn from and work with. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I'll just say that that makes me blush. It's very sweet of him to say. Um, I hope that the work that I do can have an impact on the world. Uh, certainly Marie's work did, um, in ways that, you know, still it's reverberating now. I think that it's really great to see how many people have tapped into her story um, and have really elevated it. Really, it really how, is. how big her story has become. Yeah. I mean, all over social media, there's people that, that reference her and as like a, as a sort of early woman pioneer in this field, which is great, right? That's a great legacy. I think of hers. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can only hope that the work that, that I do and the legacy that I leave will have some, some level of impact. I don't, I don't know how big. <laughs> I have no doubt after, you know, a few conversations, but especially this one. Um, let me ask you, so Marie Tharp was based at Lamont, where you are based, which is, um, must have some resonance for you and certainly has resonance for me. I'm base there too. Um, what kind of sort of edge does Lamont have because of her work, if any, because she was there when she produced this work? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think one of the great, um, one of the great marks that Lamont has made, um, I think in this, you know, in the science, uh, of, looking at the seafloor, um, is, has to do with the preservation of data and also the continuity of, you know, intellectual input from a variety of, uh, Marie's contemporaries, Marie herself and people who've come after Marie. So there's a couple of different ways to look at this. Um, one is, you know, the, the work that she did, which, um, you know, Bill Ryan helped to see some of it across the finish line, as he has described when we've talked with him. Um, there's certainly continuity where that evolved into um, other projects. So the Ridge multi-beam synthesis was probably, a, a could, could be considered a pretty direct um, next step after Marie's work, where uh, that was Bill Ryan and Bill Haxby, and they really were focusing on um, delivering digital models of mid-ocean ridges over the internet. And this was in the early 90s. It was very pioneering at the time. Um, uh, a decade later, Suzanne Carbot got involved and they started to really take this to the next level as a multi-resolutional global synthesis. And I think the, the intellectual effort that's been put in over the years you know, Bill has, in my view, Bill has certainly pay, played a big part in that continuity and, uh, at least on the technical side, for sure. Um, but that has helped us work through a lot of the kinks and, uh, get past a lot of the challenges to really build a product and an infrastructure that scales well, is extremely performant and 
really delivers the kind of products that we as scientists and the public want to be able to access. So that's, that's one awesome sort of outcome that, that I'm really fortunate to be able to be a part of and then help usher along as it continues to evolve and then connect that with Seabed 2030 is a really great opportunity. Um, but the other piece is the, the data, um, archiving and sharing, right? So in the early days of Lamont, not just Marie's work, but lots of people's work, Walter Pittman's work, a lot of that made use of this sort of growing archive of data that Lamont curated. And there are several projects still functional at Lamont that have continued that and grown into the digital era and are focused on making the data available. So those those two things are definitely probably the biggest foci of my research and my, my professional work. And those are very much, you know, part of the, the story, I think, of Marie Tharp and Lamont. Yeah, they spring from, from that, all those hours she spent with all those rolls of paper and it all like connects, which is pretty remarkable. So as we look to wrap up our, our talk um, about Marie Tharp, if you were to have an opportunity to speak with her, even briefly, what do you think you would like to say to Marie Tharp right now, today? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. I don't know. I think it could be happy birthday. I mean, the, the, the first obvious thing is thank you because like what she did is spectacular. But I imagine that we'd probably geek out <laughs> about <laughs> uh, how. And she would appreciate that from. I mean, I would hope know. so. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Vicki Farini, thank you so much for talking to Pot of the Planet. And and I'll sign off here. Marie Denoya Aronson wishing Marie Tharp a happy birthday for Pot of the Planet.